A Platoon of Misery is presented by Eric Hooks. The Black Dog The valley is settled between high mountains that shield it from the morning sun. That gives the strange blue light I was walking around in, taking careful steps, making sure to stay on the path. The reason was obvious. I could see several makeshift red flags standing in the field not far from the small group of tents. Each flag marked a spot where a landmine had triggered, a mean weapon that keeps on killing and wounding years after whatever conflict it was put there for. The herders tried to lead their goats in front of themselves to make the mines go off, but the mechanism inside the hidden assassins is so devilishly made that it takes the weight of a grown-up human to trigger them. It has since been my image of utter desperation when you're willing to sacrifice your goats, which are your only source of income, rather than being blown up yourself. Four years before, all the villages in the valley were bombed, and then soldiers moved in and captured every male inhabitant that looked like they were capable of carrying a weapon, and only a few escaped. The 6,000 men disappeared, and no one ever found out what happened to them. Now, more than 30 years later, no mass grave has been found. That's why all the people around me were women, children, or very old men speaking in low voices. Many of them had fled other valleys, leaving men behind still fighting. I made eye contact and then shot pictures of a man getting the bandage changed on what used to be his right foot. The mine had blown it off and only left half of his lower leg remaining. In my mind, I was swearing and wishing the producers of those disgusting traps all that hell had to offer them. Inside a big tent, there were quite a few very small children, and normally that would mean a lot of noise from babies crying and babbling. But there was not a sound passing their lips. All of them were infected with enemy number one in a place like this, cholera. The sight was not new to me, since this is often what happens when a lot of people are crammed together with dirty drinking water and lousy sanitary conditions, or no toilets at all. The small kids are the first victims, unable to drink the amount of water they lose. They dehydrate sometimes in a few hours and then die. I kept on shooting pictures being as empathetic yet still as professional as I could be, these people deserve to get their story told in the best possible way. The only nurse present was holding a small, very dehydrated baby. His skin was full of wrinkles as there was no water in his body to smoothen it. Can you hold him for a while, she said, and handed me the small body wrapped in a sheet to me. He needs to be kept warm. I laid down my cameras and carefully took the small package in my arms, holding him close to my body. He lay there with his closed eyes and a breath that was so weak that I had to hold his mouth close to my ear just to sense it. 
The nurse went out of the tent to get some more IV drops for the baby, and I don't know for how long she was gone. In the meantime, I just sat there looking at the baby and watching some women making a fire outside the tent as it was time for their morning tea. Then the nurse came back with a bag full of supplies, sighing that she would soon be running out of stock. She turned around and sat down in front of me, looked at the baby in my arms and stuck a finger in under the sheet to feel his heart. She looked me in the eyes. I'm afraid he's dead and then carefully took the small boy. The next thing I remember is finding myself sitting behind what used to be a house. There was only one wall still standing. I'd probably been crying for a long time, but my sense of time had left me, and the only thing I could feel was a deep sorrow. You can be as rational as you want, but the feeling of having failed will never leave me totally. It took me years to find courage to tell anybody, being afraid of, and I still partly am, of simply falling to pieces. When I finally did, it was to my daughter's mother, who was six or seven months pregnant. She understood when I was afraid of taking my newborn baby in my arms, standing looking at the small girl, all of my body was on red alert, ready to flee, because of the chance of it happening again. It only took a few minutes of utter panic, but then I convinced myself that this was a safe environment. Fear became love, and hugging my girl is still one of my greatest pleasures. I could still fall down a hole once in a while, and one particular day, five or six years after my daughter's birth, when the hole felt really deep, I was just driving around shooting lousy pictures of the landscape. I sat down in a field and the warm wind comforted me. Far away I could hear a farmer starting his tractor and above me there were larks singing and some seagulls discussing where to go. Closing my eyes I could see the small boy in my arms and at last we slowly found peace with each other. It was a strange feeling in the beginning but for sure a relief. Some months later, I realised that one of the reasons why I'm fishing is that it keeps me out of the deep hole, or as the Major calls it, keeps the black dog away. The Major is one of the reasons I have so much respect for veterans fighting what they call moral injury. I can find a lot of arguments for not sending soldiers into battle, and for sure I do. But when they come home wounded in their soul, we have to treat them as well as we can. The Major knows the black dog very well. It's running around him every night, and he's fighting to keep it from climbing into his bed. He spent his professional life in a lot of conflicts around the world, always as a peacekeeper. It worked well, for quite some years until he ended up in an African country where one tribe was trying to wipe out another tribe. They tried very hard and with an awful lot of success. Every night the Major is having the same nightmare about looking through the telescopic sight of his rifle. 
In front of him is a man slowly killing a woman with a machete. The Major can only observe without having allowance to pull the trigger, and that is the worst thing you can order a soldier to do, trained as he is to step into action. Unable to live in a city's noise and commotion, the Major and his family settled to live on a small island. In their remote corner of the island, the only noises are barnacle geese babbling in the sky, or a horse greeting another hoofed friend. His pretty stubborn wife, you have to be to stay married to a veteran with moral injury, got the Major back on some kind of track, and that triggered a thought. If life on the island worked to heal him, would it work for other veterans? They tried, and with quite some success. Veterans have lost family, job, and friends because of their moral injury, and are taught to keep the black dog away by the Major and his wife. The wounded soldiers can stay on the island for as long as they want, working on the small farm. Days are spent tending horses, sheep and pigs, and sometimes they go fishing. When the mackerel starts to roam our waters, the Major and I make a short call and set a date, or rather, we try to set a date. As veterans have good and not so good and sometimes terrible days, they never know before the sun rises and you just have to live with it. We met at a small harbour. I was standing on the pier and the Major came sailing from the island together with two of the veterans. I brought all the fishing gear and the very important, the gear for making coffee. I knew the Major's cooler contained delicious sandwiches made by his wife. There was good reason to believe that the trip would be perfect. While we sailed out to find the striped bandits, the Major and I caught each other up on the latest news and the two veterans joined us. The youngest of them had spent eight years after his last assignment abroad, sniffing the equivalent of several hundred miles of white stripes on the road. He was clean now, and didn't even drink alcohol anymore, though he admitted to be smoking a joint once in a while. Who cares? He was looking good, and I can easily imagine what he used to look like. I'm trying to find my way, he said, or as the Major would put it, get your shit in one sock. We found the spot where the mackerel were partying and lowered our lures. The youngest veteran hooked up pretty fast and was struggling to get the fish to the surface. When he got it reeled in close to the boat and after an intense fight and lifted it up on board and we all broke out in praise. With perfect black stripes on the big iridescent green muscular body, the fish looked like a freshly painted American car from the 50s. The happy angler stood with his mouth open and then he spoke and his voice came from a place inside him that I think he had just found again after many years in just that moment. That is the most beautiful fish I have ever caught. The Major and I looked briefly at each other with a smile and I thought, mission accomplished. Smiles got bigger as we caught more mackerel and lowered our teeth into the tasty sandwiches. I made coffee and sitting there in the sun, drifting in a boat, 
There were no veterans in sight with moral injury for a time. We all know that black dogs can't swim. The Platoon of Misery is read by Patrick Johnson, written and produced by Sam Scarby. <laughs>